I'm turning this evening to Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 3 and verse 11. Romans chapter 3, verse 11. His words, There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. And our subject will be spiritual apathy, but even more, perhaps, spiritual vagueness. And the message will be an appeal to the spiritually vague. There are countless people who are spiritually vague. That is to say, they do not seem to believe or to understand that true faith, that true religion is something definite and something that can be defined, something certain. It's made up of a set of propositions that uh, rely upon each other and are true. True faith is a detailed view of God. There is a great deal of atheism, unbelief, complete indifference, but then there's another position. It isn't quite atheism, it isn't quite unbelief, it's that of the spiritually vague. And in spiritual vagueness, we say, oh, I wouldn't go that far as to say there is no God. I would not go as far as to ridicule or scorn faith in God and religion. But on the other hand, it says, I don't think you can be absolutely certain about anything. And it isn't wise to have any definite views or clear picture of who God is or what he's like or how he deals with us or what the soul is like or what the future is like eternally. That's a kind of extremism. So there's the vague position. It's a very comfortable position until we wake up to what it spells out for us. Vagueness. It comes, the word vague, from the Latin verb to wonder or to ramble. But it tends to mean a little more than that in English. Something has no shape, no form. It isn't definite. I remember being in this phase as a youngster. First of all, atheism, unbelief, scorn of anything spiritual, of God. And then various things happened. And uh, I suppose I was influenced by various people. And I came to realize that this was uh, not a good position to be in. That there was, after all, much to be said for religious faith and the being of God. And he could not be disproved. In fact, there was much evidence for him. And so I became a vague believer in something. I wouldn't any longer say I was an atheist. On the other hand, I smiled at people who were too definite, who felt that they had found God or knew something definite and certain. This in-between position, it's a very comfortable position to be in because the devil whispers in your ear 
and tells you that you are a broad-minded person and a non-judgmental person and you're not an intemperate person, you're not an extremist and you take things steadily and rationally. So you think it's a very fine position to be in and you're at ease. You're not an atheist. On the other hand, your soul is untroubled about any relationship with God or being separated from him because you don't think you can come to very definite conclusions. And there are so many people who pass through this stage or get stuck in this stage of being vague and wanting nothing certain. So I'd like to speak about that a little tonight. This was the situation in the ancient world, the world of the Apostle Paul. There is none that understandeth. Of course, he makes a universal statement. It's true of all people in all times. But it was especially obvious then. The Jews, and the Apostle Paul was a Jew, the writer of these words, the Jews were extremely religious, but in a strange kind of way. They were very largely ritualists. They'd been given a system of worship in earlier times through Moses. And that system of worship was really a kind of teaching system. It was to teach them. I won't go into it in any depth, but for example, uh, there were many washings, ablutions, and the priests had to wash several times before they officiated, and their garments had to be spotless. And what was the significance of all this? Well, it was to impress upon the minds of the people the holiness of God. He cannot just be approached like that easily. He is holy. And we are defiled and sinful. And so the worship was designed to teach. The sacrifices were the same. And I, time compels me to oversimplify. But there were all the different sacrifices. And the idea was to teach that without the shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness of sin. There would one day be a great redeemer coming. And a great sacrifice offered that would be effective and really would bring about the pardon and the forgiveness of sin. But the sacrifices given to the Jews in ancient times, they were figures or illustrations of this. There must be sacrifice. In fact, they had to sacrifice so often and so much that it was obvious to them that these sacrifices actually had no efficacy. They did not take away the sin. So they had to be repeatedly performed because they were pointing forward to the necessity of some great act of God whereby sin would be dealt with. They were pictures. But here's the trouble, and this is why I mention this. Though many Jews understood it and believed in this and looked forward to the coming of the Messiah and they repented of their sin and obtained forgiveness knowing that God would one day do away with the guilt of sin, most of the Jews thought, because God has given us this elaborate system of worship, 
It means that we are special, that we are the best, that we are all right, that we are God's special people, and we have nothing to worry about, and it doesn't matter much about our lives. We're all right. God loves us. Look what God has given us, separated us and made us distinctive with this special law and all these provisions and this system of worship. So unfortunately, this was true of the Jews. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. It's in two parts. They don't understand about God, said the Apostle Paul. They don't understand about his holiness and their sinfulness and their need. They don't understand what God has done to provide a way of salvation. They're imprecise. They're vague about all this. And what's more, they're happy in that state because they don't seek for anything better. There is none that seeketh after God. Only here and there were there people who said, but I need to know God. I need an encounter with him. I need to find him and have his blessing upon me and upon my life. Most were not interested. They lived for the here and now and they lived for their sin. And that was that. And I shouldn't be too long with this, but it was the same with the Gentiles. Not just the Jews, but the Greeks were the same. And the Romans were the same. And others were the same. The polytheists, the people who worshipped multiple gods, but they didn't have one single god among them who they could know, who could speak, to whom they could pray, who would answer their prayers, who was a living God, whom they could relate to. And they were happy not knowing God. And they were content. And they didn't seek him. So we're talking about the spiritually vague, the religious vague. What's our position, friends? Are you vague? Do you not think that God may precisely be known and sought, that this is not real, that he is not real and personal and approachable and findable? Do you have a vague view? Well, it won't take long, but we need to talk about these things. Oh, it's very accommodating, your position. It's very non-judgmental, as I said. But it's untenable. Dear friends, don't be offended. It's a crazy position. It's completely unproductive. This vague view of religion won't get you anywhere. It won't get you to heaven. It won't get you to God. You don't really believe in these things. You can't define these things. You don't know about these things. You make zero progress in spiritual matters. You'll never find him. Your knowledge is non-existent. You don't know him, the apostle says. Well, you don't, if you're spiritually vague. You say, I don't know what God is like, and I don't particularly mind not knowing. I don't know if he's personal. 
I don't know if he may be known. I don't know what he thinks of me. I don't know what he intends to do with the world or with my soul. You wouldn't be vague in any other area of life. You wouldn't be vague in your profession. I've no doubt we have accountants here. What would it be if they didn't mind which column any figure went into? How it was to be classified? What was to be done with it? Just throw it here, throw it there. Impossible. You can't be vague in your work or your profession. A vague doctor who just gives anybody anything? It's impossible. A vague chef or cook? A vague airline pilot? These illustrations are ridiculous. This is all impossible. You've got to be precise. You've got to know what you're doing. A vague traveller, come to that, who turns up at an airport not knowing where he's going, how much he wants to spend, how he wants to get anywhere. It's crazy. Nowhere in life would you be vague. And yet in the biggest thing of all, your soul and your eternal destiny, we choose to be vague. It is extraordinary. It's untenable. It's unproductive. You can't be vague as a parent and not know where your children are or what's going on or what will happen to them or what the school is like. Or I know some people try to be, but that's fatal. You can't be vague. You've got to be definite. Oh, friends, don't be vague with your soul. Don't be vague with your view of God. It's madness. It's the biggest matter of all that you face. It's a moral matter. If I'm vague toward God, that's insulting to him. He made me. He owns me. He watches me. I will have to give account to him. He's ready to pardon me and extend his love to me and change my life. He's my creator and designer. He's everything. And he's nothing. To me, I'm vague. It doesn't matter to me whether he can be defined or described or not. That's crazy to take that attitude. It's escapism. It's running away from the most important thing and refusing to think about it. It's willful. Don't think that vagueness is just an accident. It's actually willful. Do you know what the Bible calls vagueness in spiritual things? This might offend you, but you must listen to this. It calls it an evil heart of unbelief. In other words, you're vague about God because you don't like him and you don't want him. It's like a no vote, a vote against God. That's how he sees it. And it's an insult to him. It's your way of saying to God, I don't know you. I don't particularly want to know you. I don't care about this. I don't want to hear about you. I will not honor and obey you. It is actually willful. Vagueness 
in matters of religion. Let's talk for a brief moment about the depriving power of vagueness. What it takes from you. What it steals from you. It steals your potential spiritual life. It takes away your view of God. Because you're vague and you don't want to go into detail and you don't want to find out and you don't want to know about him, you will never see the divine attributes, that is, the characteristics of God. And it's vital to know about them. It's vital to understand that God is spirit, that he is eternal, that he's almighty, all-powerful, that he's unchanging. It's vital to know that he's holy and perfect and unblemished in every conceivable way. It's vital to know that he's just and that he hates sin and that he in his character is pledged to punish sin. It's vital to know also that he is love and he is merciful. Some people just take little bits of this. Oh, I believe in a God of love. Therefore, everyone will go to heaven. Therefore, everyone will be all right. And because they're so vague, they don't understand about the justice of God. He is merciful and loving, but he's also holy and just. And that means we're all condemned except that God in his mercy has made a provision for us so that we may be forgiven and made new. And he's come himself in the person of his eternal son, Jesus Christ the Lord, who suffered and died in our place to take the punishment due to us for our sin, if we are among those who calls upon him for help and mercy. He's borne away our sin. That's the precision with which we need to understand God. We need to understand his knowledge. We need to understand all about him. You need precision in your view. And then another thing which vagueness steals from you is your capacity to see yourself. If you're vague about God and about faith, you cannot see yourself. Because we can only see ourselves as we are once we've got some conception of God. He is perfect and holy. What am I? I see myself by contrast. Fallen, sinful, so fallible, so weak, so morally objectionable in his sight Ah, now I begin to grasp myself and human nature and why there are wars and squabbles and fights and tempers and thefts and selfishness and everything else in human baggage. And we can only really appreciate our own need of God's forgiveness once we understand his perfection and his holiness. We are in his image and we see our fallen state once we appreciate his high and holy 
state and condition. Vagueness takes away our ability to see ourselves. So we go through life thinking, well, I'm better than somebody I can think of, so I'm all right. I have nothing to worry about. And we're like somebody who's imprisoned in a dungeon in the dark and he's filthy, dirty and unwashed in weeks and weeks. But he doesn't know it because it's dark in his cell and he can't see himself. And the person who's spiritually vague can't see himself or herself and their need for the pardon and the love of God and the change which God will bring in the life. Vagueness takes all that away. And vagueness takes away your view of eternity. Oh, these things are vague and imprecise. Heaven, what's that? Oh, it's a definite place. There is a throne of judgment. There is a day of judgment. There is a distinction according to Christ, according to the teaching of the Bible. And we go to one place or we go to another. And we don't see any of that. That's myth. That's vague. That's fairy tale. That's unreal. Because I'm conditioned by vagueness. I just don't take it in. Nothing is important. Nothing is urgent about these things. Dear friends, it takes away my humility, vagueness. Vagueness, think about this for a moment. Vagueness makes me a judge or a decider. I'm vague. I say you can't know. Therefore, I decide there's a bit of truth here. I think I can accept that. There's a bit of truth there. I think I can accept that. I don't really accept this. I don't accept that. Do you see, I'm elevating myself. I become the judge of everything. What's right? What's wrong? What's true? What's false? The devil has told me that being vague is a very humble thing. It's a lie. It's really a very arrogant thing. I am decider in chief of everything. I even judge God. Oh, it says in the Bible, God did such and such a thing. I don't think that's fair. We stand in judgment. We have promoted ourselves. We've virtually made ourselves our own gods. And if we're going to be religious, we choose our God. And we manufacture him according to what we want. I think the God I believe in will be like this. He won't mind my doing this. He won't mind my doing that. He'll be kind of holy, but not too holy. He'll be, and I fashioned him according to what I want. Vagueness actually makes me very arrogant. I am the decider and the judge of all things. And who am I? What do I know? Can I see into heaven? Can I read the mind of God? I can only know about God from what he tells me in his word, in the Holy Scriptures, in the inspired book of God. But no, I'm making up my own mind. I'm above all that. I'm trying to get across what vagueness does to us, what it steals from us. 
how it shapes us and affects us. It's a terrible thing to be vague before God. It takes all possibility of finding him and having communion with him. And vagueness certainly doesn't like the message of the gospel. That salvation is the free gift of God, which comes by grace. And we're just poor lost sinners, and we need to repent and call upon God for a new life and a new heart and a place in heaven and his companionship and kindness and fatherly care over us. Vagueness doesn't want any of that. All that is too precise and too definite for vagueness. Dear friends, tonight, really, I've come to say you must be definite in your search after God. You must rely upon the definite message of the Scriptures. You've hardly opened the Bible. You're just two or three pages into the book of Genesis And it's already telling you about a coming saviour, a great descendant of Abraham, who one day would come into the world and crush the head of the serpent, the enemy of souls, and deal with the problem of sin. It's already telling you. And it'll unfold that more and more. This is the most consistent book with the clearest message running through it from cover to cover like a great cable about the love of God and the coming of Christ and the redemption which comes through him alone. It's in every book of the Bible, practically, right to the end. You need to be precise and pick up the information and trust your soul to it. You need firm belief in Almighty God, in three persons, the coming of Christ the Son to be a mediator and to suffer in our place, the availability of conversion and the power of the Spirit working in your life and making you new. Shun the feelings of vagueness, friends. Avoid it like the plague. Pray to God and ask him, to deliver you from vagueness and from its trap. If you're finding new accommodation, you need to buy something or rent something. You need legal documents. You need an agreement or a lease or whatever. It's got to be properly done and firmly done and precisely done. There's no vagueness in your life in these all-important things. There is a procedure, there is a way of securing your home and your family. And so it is even more so with the things of God. You can only know about God from his word. You've got to start with the being of God and his holiness and his wonderful kindness You've got to look at what he has done and the provision he has made for the salvation of souls. And you've got to come to him, believing in Christ, trusting in him, asking for the salvation that comes 
only from him. I mentioned when I was a youngster, I went through the vague stage. And then I began to hear some messages, some sermons, quite by accident at first. And I began to read the Bible. And although I'd been to schools where there was religion all the time, I'd never taken it in, never troubled with it. But once I started reading and hearing, I was astonished at the precision of the message of salvation in the Bible. How consistent and perfect and clear it all was. And I was shaken. You cannot be vague. And I began to search. And there were not only books and scriptures, but there was one hymn that sticks out in my mind as influencing me and speaking to me about the precise things you have to believe and trust in to find God. And in a few moments, we'll sing it. And I remember reading a comment from, I don't, I don't know whether he was a churchgoer or not, but a man who was a very notable professor of poetry in the University of London, saying that in his judgment, it was the greatest religious poem in the English language. And it is, but it's not just for its poetry. It's for its precision and its clear view of the very heart and center of the way of salvation. We need Christ Jesus. We need to repent of our sin. We need to trust in what is done on Calvary's cross for our salvation. And we need to yield our lives to him. Let's pray, friends. Oh God, our gracious heavenly Father, help us all this night. Deliver us from vagueness. Show us, O oh Lord, its eternal danger. Show us what it's doing to us. Grant us clear views. And best of all, a clear view of Christ Jesus, the only Saviour. Help us, O oh Lord, and save us, we ask. And we ask these things in the name of our Saviour, Jesus Christ, for his sake. Amen.